Hi there, it's episode 139, and today I'm answering the question, how do you get kids to play independently? You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is episode 139. Today, I'm going to be taking a question from an audience member about how do you get kids to play independently? If you've been listening to Simple Family since the beginning, which we're approaching two years in February, you'll know that I did Q&A episodes exclusively like this when I started. So I took one question from a reader, from an audience member, and just did a deep dive into the topic. So I'm curious, I want to hear from you. What do you think about this format? Do you like this format? Do you like interviews? Do you like it when I answer multiple questions in one episode? So please leave your thoughts in the comments at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 139. I would really love to hear from you and your input. Before we get started, here's a quick word from today's sponsor. The sponsor for today's episode is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a box of curated, high-quality chicken, beef, and pork. The meat is frozen at the peak of freshness, and it's served up in individual, vacuum-packed, biodegradable packaging. And it's all delivered right at your doorstep. I like that it's antibiotic and hormone-free, and I don't have to worry about sifting through the products at the grocery store to find what meets my standards. There's a great selection, and I can tell you from personal experience that the quality is awesome. So if you want to give it a try, you go to butcherbox.com forward slash families and enter the promo code families. Go to butcherbox.com forward slash families and enter the promo code families, and you'll get a free order of bacon. The bacon is good. Trust me. Try it out. I think you're going to like it. So if you haven't already registered for the masterclass, the Simple Families Masterclass starts on January 7th. If Simplify is something that's on your to-do list for 2019, this might be exactly what you need. The program runs for eight weeks. The first half, we focus on simplifying the family home. We're really owning in on the areas that tend to be difficult for families, like the toys or the wardrobes. And then in the second half, we're going to talk about simplifying parenting. So after we tackle the physical stuff, we're going to talk a little bit about the mental and emotional stuff. And as parents, it's really easy to get overwhelmed and bogged down with distractions and worries and hurrying our kids. So we're going to talk about all of that. And there are three really great bonuses that I'm excited to tell you about. So the first is I'm going to be doing a tour of my house for the first time ever. And I'm also giving away my Simplify Child Behavior Program and my Simplify the Toys or the, to- the Toy Detox, as some of you know it. So you're buying one program and then you're getting two for free. In the eight-week masterclass, you're going to get weekly video lessons and there will be group coaching sessions with me too. And my favorite part of this program, which really differentiates it from just reading a book, is the accountability and community. We'll have a private members-only group, which we're not going to run on Facebook, which I've done in the past, but I've had a lot of people requesting to get away from Facebook. So we're going to be using an app called Ellie, which is a parent group app. It's very simple and streamlined, and it's going to be a great way to stay in touch and get to know each other better. So on to today's question, which is how do you get kids to play independently? Now, as with most things when it comes to parenting, there's not a quick fix for getting your kids to play independently, but I am going to give you several things to think about as you're moving towards this. 
when it comes to getting your kids to play independently, it's not something that you're doing or something that you're not doing necessarily. You're going to find that independent play is different across genders, across ages, and across circumstances, depending on where you are and who you're with. I'm raising two kids, and one plays more independently than the other one does. So three things that I want to talk about regarding independent play. The first is that we as parents need to gauge our expectations. It's really hard to know what to expect of a child of any given age and their ability to play independently. It's not something as simple as a five-year-old should be able to play 50 minutes or a two-year-old should be able to play 20 minutes. It varies so much by the child. So first and foremost, we have to gauge our expectations for our individual children. Second, we need to assess their personality. Certain personalities and certain kids do do better by themselves, and certain kids need more support when it comes to playing. And lastly, we need to help set them up for success. I don't think it's a parent's fault or their responsibility to teach a child to play independently, but there are certain things that we can do in our home and in our efforts as parents that will help support independent play more so. So step one is to gauge your expectations. If you have a kid that really doesn't want to play independently and wants to cling to you all the time when you're trying to cook dinner, when you're trying to work, whatever it is that you're trying to do, then realize that you have to start small. I know that there's people out there that say, oh, my kid has quiet time for 45 minutes in their bedroom every afternoon instead of a nap or something like that. That sort of thing never worked for my kids. I think it can work. You can set timers. I'm a big fan of something called a visual timer, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Visual timers allow kids to see how much time is left before they can actually read a clock or tell time. When you use something like a visual timer, you can show kids, all right, you're going to go into your room and you're going to play by yourself for 20 minutes. And when the timer goes off, you can come out. That's a really structured way to implement some boundaries around independent play. Now, the problem with that is that some kids just struggle with not knowing how to get started. They struggle with not knowing what to do. So if you have a kid who's really having a hard time getting started and really just doesn't play independently much at all, then you need to start very small. And by that, I mean short periods of time and not necessarily behind a closed door because that can feel like a lot of pressure. Now, when you're gauging your expectations, you also need to stop and check yourself because sometimes our kids are playing independently and we're just not even noticing. I know that when my kids are quiet and they're off doing their own thing and I'm busy, I get absorbed into my own tasks and sometimes I don't even notice. The times that I notice them not playing independently is when they're interrupting me when I'm trying to do something. So pay attention to what your kids are actually doing. They might actually be playing independently more than you think. It might just not be at the most convenient times for you. This point holds true in so many different areas of parenting in that it's much easier to notice the difficult moments than it is to notice the peaceful, simple ones. So step one is definitely gauge your expectations and tries to develop a deeper appreciation for the independent play that is happening in your house that you might not be noticing. Step two is to assess the personality of your child. There are some kids that are naturally wired to play better independently. 
Now, I don't really see independent play as any kind of gold star or achievement. You know, if you you play independently, you're better off, you're, you have a higher IQ, or you're more likely to be successful or anything like that. I think there are a lot of individual factors that play into this. But if your kid is not playing independently, I can assure you that it's not something that you did wrong. And it's really not a problem except for the fact that it might make it difficult for you to get things done and you might be looked to as a playmate more often than you like to be, like to. If you're not someone that likes to play, pretend play and that sort of thing with your kids, that's okay. I don't think that as parents we should ever really push ourselves outside of our comfort zone if we don't want to. If you don't want to be down on the floor playing superheroes or princesses or whatever it is, then don't. I don't think it's a negative thing. Most of us, if we look back at our own childhood, our parents weren't doing that very often with us either. So try to drop the guilt around not playing with your kids every time that they ask you to play with them because you're certainly not doing them any harm in that. I might actually argue that you're teaching them how to set good boundaries because if it's something that you don't want to do and you're saying no, you're practicing modeling that, that when there's something that we don't want to do, it's okay for us to say no to it. It's okay for us to create boundaries around those things. So looking at the personalities of our kids, some kids are naturally more extroverted and they require a lot more people around them and they like to interact and to socialize more frequently. Some kids are introverts and they like to be by themselves and they like to play by themselves and they need more space and more quiet. We don't often appreciate the value of introverts as often as we should, whether it be introverted kids or introverted grownups, whatever it is. But there's nothing wrong with being, being introverted. There's nothing wrong with needing time to yourself. If you have a kid that's introverted, you might see them disappear into their own play and into their own creative, imaginative world. And that's okay. It's important as parents that we follow their lead and we let them be who they are. And when it comes to kids playing by themselves, you're going to see as they get older that introverts do it a little bit more often, more frequently with longer duration periods of time. You also might find if you have an introvert that they are clinging to your side, wanting you to be with them, because even though they're introverted, they still feel the comfort of being with a parent. So being an introvert doesn't necessarily correlate with playing independently, but I would say that there is probably a higher correlation of introverts who play independently as children. But there's no research to that, or at least no research as far as I'm aware of. I have one child who is more introverted and she definitely plays independently and gets lost in her own world all the time. And I wouldn't say it happens for extended periods of time, but I see it happening more frequently at an earlier age than with my son, who's almost five or actually just turned five. And he is more of an extrovert and he really thrives on social interaction, loves having friends over, loves playing with kids his age. If he has a friend over, he and the friend are off playing and they are certainly not talking to the adults or hanging around the adults. So even though he doesn't play independently by himself as often, he does, but I wouldn't say with the intensity and duration that my daughter does. He definitely plays independently of me and of the grownups when he has other kids around. I also do think, and I know that there's going to be a lot of people out there who disagree with me, that I see a different type of play, pretend play in particular, between girls and boys. Girls tend to have more elaborate pretend play. You know, the characters have roles and they have jobs and responsibilities and they have stories. 
and boys tend to play collaboratively, but not with as much intense detail as girls do. Now, of course, that is a total generalization. So you might have kids that defy that hypothesis completely. But I think in general, from what I've observed from being around a lot of kids is that I see girls go a lot deeper into their storylines when they're pretend playing. When you have a kid that goes deeper into a storyline and really gets engaged into pretend play, it's going to last longer. It's going to be more interesting to them. I encourage you to watch how your kids are playing once they reach the age of two or three where they're pretend playing. You might see that if you have a boy that he's pushing around trucks and sort of making noises for trains and talking about the different characters and the superheroes go out on missions and they rescue and girls tend to have more detailed stories. So the characters have conflicts, the characters have disputes, the characters express more emotions if we're going to carry on to the gender generalizations, which I've been making, and if this doesn't apply to you, totally forgive me for it. But in my own conversations with other women, I also notice this in adults that we tend to tell stories in more depth than men do. And we tend to tell stories in different ways. We include a lot more details about emotion. We include a lot more details about connections and relationships and what he said and what she said. So I don't necessarily think this type of interaction is exclusive to young girls. I think adult women tend to interact in these ways more so too. Now, whether this is true of the boy-girl gender dynamic, that's really hard to say, but it might be true based on your child. If you have a child who does play more intensely and develops their characters more so when they're pretend playing, you're going to see that those kids are engage for longer periods of time, and they're more interested in that play. In addition to personality types and gender, I think that birth order is something else that we need to consider. So when you have a first child, you're much more likely to give them all the attention and all the things and to be all in with them. And when you have a second child, you don't have as much time and attention to devote. You know, you were giving 100% of attention to the first kid and then the second kid comes along and you're dividing that attention 50-50. I always say that, sure, your heart and your love multiplies in size, but your time doesn't. So when you have less time to dedicate and to play with a child, the more likely that they are to sort of pick up on that slack and do it for themselves. So if you have a first child that doesn't play quite as independently, it probably relates in some ways to the amount of interaction that they were getting from you as a child, that they had a lot of supplemental attention that was given to them in those early years when they were in only children. And when you have second and third and fourth children that come along, they don't have quite as much parental attention. And as a result, they tend to fill in the blanks and fill in the gaps. That's also the reason that I believe that second children tend to be a little bit more loud and rambunctious is because the first child, they can ask for something and be heard. But once a second child comes along, sometimes they have to yell in order to be heard and they have to speak a lot lot more loudly. And sometimes they'll just skip asking quietly and just scream it and ask for it loudly because there's so much commotion going on and there's so much more activity in the home as the number of children increase that the subsequent children seem a little bit rowdier and it could just be a matter of that's them trying to get their needs met and as parents when we have more children it's difficult for us to be as in tune to every little tiny detail that's going on with our kids when we have multiple of them. 
I remember back to when my son was in Montessori school when he was, he was about 22 months old. He was my first child and I, I didn't have any other children. I was pregnant with my daughter at that time and we went in for his first conference and the, t- the feedback that his teacher gave me was that I actually needed to start being a little less responsive to him. And the, the fact of the matter is I was noticing when he was hungry before he asked for the food. I was noticing when he had to go to the bathroom before he asked to go to the potty. So what happened with the way that translated in the classroom was he wasn't asking the adults for what he needed help with because he was sort of looking around anticipating that everyone knew what he needed already. So by me filling in the gaps and me being uber responsive to him, in some ways I wasn't allowing him the opportunity to speak up for his own needs. So I intentionally started to scale back on my responsiveness, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but I think that it really can give our kids an opportunity to step up and to be more independent and to give them more space to create their own play stories and to do some real work that might not happen if we're on top of them all the time being uber responsive to them. One other piece of this puzzle when we're assessing our children's ability to play independently is that we can look at their executive functioning. Now, executive functioning is their ability to organize and use information in their brains. Now, when a child has high levels of executive functioning, they can take all the information in, organize it, arrange it, reuse it, repeat it, tell stories really well, follow directions really well, that sort of thing. Kids who have executive functioning challenges, and a lot of times this correlates with ADHD and ADHD tendencies, they tend to struggle to create those detailed play scenarios. They'll sit down and they'll start playing and they'll get to playing and they'll get stuck and have a difficult time problem solving and not know what to do next. And sometimes those type of kids will come to adults looking for extra help and extra support. Which brings me to step number three, which is to set them up for success. Well, I don't think that we need to be playmates as adults. I do think that there's a lot we can do to help set our kids up for success. In particular, when we know that they're struggling and they just seem like they really can't get started when it comes to playing by themselves. One of the things that I think is really important to remember and something that we're going to talk about in more detail in the masterclass that starts on January 7th is that we really need to work to make our homes child accessible rather than child proof. When we child proof our homes to extremes, kids can't access and they can't get the things that they need and it actually prevents them from playing independently. So if their toys are up high and they can't get to them or if all the art supplies are out of reach and they want to do art, whatever it is, Sometimes we make our kids' worlds less accessible. And when they can't do things for themselves, like when they can't reach the sink to wash their hands, they're not going to be able to wash their hands independently. So when we're setting them up for success, we have to make sure that we're setting up our homes to be a place that is child-friendly, not child-proof. And that will help them to be more independent, not just in play, but in so many more areas of their life too. Now, I told you that it's not your fault if your kid doesn't play independently, and I truly believe that, but I do think that we can make ourselves a little bit more sparse. And now, like in my example with my son not speaking up for what he needed when he was very young, I think that we can be intentional about sort of fading ourselves out and not necessarily being responsive and jumping in and playing and jumping in and doing all the things that we think our kids need 
done for them and not filling in all the gaps for them. And when it's safe and when it's comfortable, wandering out of the room and letting them play on their own, but not penalizing them or getting upset with them when they don't. The types of toys that we have can also impact how much kids play independently. I usually differentiate between toys as open toys and closed toys. Open toys can be used in many different ways by kids across ages and genders and abilities. And closed toys have a smaller lifespan. So a closed toy would be something like a puzzle, something that, something that you can do and you complete and you move on to the next thing. When you have a lot of closed toys, kids tend to move through them more quickly and then they start looking, okay, well, what's next? But when we keep more open toys accessible accessible to them all the time, they're more likely to find new ways to use the things that they have. This allows them to play more independently for longer periods of time, which is what we're talking about today, right? So open-ended toys are a great way to help facilitate independent play. So going back to this example of putting kids in their room with a timer and saying you have to play independently for 30 minutes or whatever it is. If you want to do that, I think that's totally okay for you to do that. I think that if you have a kid that's really struggling with it and just sits at the door the whole time waiting to come out and feeling like they're in this giant timeout period, then they might need a little bit of extra support. Sometimes as parents, we need to help our kids get started on independent play. That might mean that we need to set up an invitation for them to play. So if you're going to put them in their room and close the door and tell them they have to play for 30 minutes, bringing in some special toys, bringing in a special little project for them to be working on while they're in the room. And if it just happens to be when they're playing out in the house and you're trying to help facilitate it, you can start to give them some what I call play scripts. So think about play scripts like a script that you would have for a stage performance for a play where you're reading through the lines where he said this and she said this and this is what the characters did and this is what they did. That's very much like the way that our kids play when they're pretend playing. You know, they act out scenes of superheroes and they play house and they play school. There's very much characters and a plot. We can help them get started with that. We can suggest a plot line or we could suggest names for the characters. We can give little bits and pieces to get our kids going and to start them moving. We don't have to stay engaged with them for long periods of time, but if we can just get them off the ground and get them running, sometimes they'll pick up where we left off. Whenever possible, we should definitely follow the lead of our kids. So even if they want to pretend play something that sounds so silly and ridiculous and boring to you, If you're going to play with them, then just go with it. Let them lead the play and follow their lead whenever possible. But if they're seeming to struggle with coming up with ideas and getting started, you can definitely help them with that. There are some cards that are called story starters. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. They are, it's a a single card and it has a few paragraphs of a little story that gets you started. I think that that is a great way to practice storytelling and to practice coming up with new endings for stories that you already know. When it comes to pretend play with our kids, storytelling is a big piece of this. And I also really love wordless books. And that's something that has been something that it's really grown on me slowly because I used to despise wordless books. But now that we have a lot of them and we've been careful about the ones that we've chosen to make sure that they're good ones, 
I've really started to see so much value in them because when you have a book with words, kids know them to be read one certain way. And once you've read it a couple of times, they anticipate what happens on this page and what happens on this page, maybe even memorizing some of the words. But when you have a wordless book, there's so many possibilities that can be told in a new way every time. And I know for my kids that they're much more likely to jump in and to tell a story with me in a wordless book than in a book with words because, you know, you can't really mess it up. There's no right and there's no wrong. Um, So I think these story starter cards and I think wordless books, those are both really lovely ways to get started on storytelling if you have a kid that needs a little extra support in that. So my last suggestion in setting them up for success is don't hesitate to involve them in what you're doing. Our kids learn through imitation, and even when we want them to go off and play by themselves, sometimes they're even better off standing next to us and helping us, even if it does create more work for us. And I know, realistically, that's not always possible. Sometimes we just need 10 minutes to get dinner prepared or whatever it might be. But when it is possible and they're clinging to your leg, figure out a way to involve them in the work that you're doing because there is real value in that in addition to the play that they do independently as well. So if you have a kid struggling to play independently, but they're willing to work with you and to get involved in whatever you're doing, then welcome them in when possible. Now, of course, if it's not possible or if you're not in the mood, you're not feeling it, then don't do it. And that's okay too. So as you can see, there's this is not an exact science. There's no certain expectation of any any given kid and any given age. There's a lot to consider. You know, we can think about their personality types. We can think about the way that they play and the way that their mind works. And then as parents, what can we do to help support them? And that doesn't mean that we need to be their playmate all the time. But the way that we set up our homes to make our belongings more accessible and the way that sometimes we can fade off on how responsive we are on meeting our kids' needs when it's appropriate. Um, and also the types of play toys that we give our kids. You know, open-ended toys are going to be more um, open to welcoming longer periods of independent play than closed toys are going to be. So I hope you got some ideas for some, from some of the things that we talked about today. I know I gave you a lot of information. I'm going to put some of this into the show notes so you can read a little bit more about it there. And if you have any questions, leave those in the comments for me. Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 139. And I'd love to talk with you more there. And make sure you get signed up for the masterclass. It starts on January 7th, simplefamilies.com forward slash masterclass. And I've decided to extend the 30% off offer after the holidays as well. So as of today, December 27th, it's still active. So jump on and sign up while you can. Again, that's simplefamilies.com forward slash masterclass. If you have questions or comments or you want to links to some of the things that we talked about today, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 139. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and I'd love to hear from you in the show notes or in the Simple Families community on Facebook, wherever it is. Have a good one.